Father God, we have read now and sung of glorious truths. Father, would you help us now to lay hold of them as our own and to apply them to our messy and mundane everyday lives. We ask that you would do this very thing in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we did. We just sang of incredible truths. The the empty tomb, there's just nothing better to sing about than that he rose from the grave and they went there and they found the thing empty. Oh, great things we got to sing about. What we're going to talk about today is uh, the tension that there is between these great promises that God gives to you, the great things we just sang about, and the messiness, the mundaneness, the weirdness of your everyday life. Uh, Disappointment with your lot in life uh, and doubt about God's promises are part of the Christian life. And so we must just establish one thing from the very beginning. Before we talk about disappointment and doubt, we just have to clarify, if you're a Christian, you go through disappointment and doubt. You experience disappointment about the way things have turned out because the promises of God are so great and our lives, in contrast to them, just don't look right sometimes. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. If you are taking hold of these great and glorious promises, you will at times wonder to yourself, can this really be? And if you're not wondering that every once in a while, you may not realize how very great these promises are. So if you do go through those things, and you know you go through those things, we need you to know from the beginning that you're not the weirdo in the room. If you're experiencing disappointment with your own life, you're not the weird one in the room. If you have gone through doubt or are going through it right now, you are not the weird one in the room. And here's why these things are normal. If you are a Christian, you have to do something very difficult every day of your life, and that is hold in one hand the great and glorious promises of God and the future that he has prepared for you, the plan that he has for you, which is great and glorious. Hold that in one hand. And on the other hand, you must not forget about your messed up, weird, didn't go as you planned life that you lead every day. And there's tension between these two things, right? Like if God's plan for me is so great and so wonderful, why did this and this happen? Like why didn't my life go the way that I thought that it was going to go, the way that I expected that it was going to go? So for instance, I'll give you one example. Uh, One of the greatest promises in the Bible is Romans 8.28. We quote it around here a lot. Uh, It says that all things, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Some of you know it and even said it along with me. Some of you don't know it and I'll say it again. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, which means that God will one day work every detail in your life for your good such that you will look back and say, I'm so glad that happened because I am better off today because that happened. That's how we will feel in eternity about the things that have happened to us. And so sometimes when you are suffering greatly, uh, you have to weigh that against, like some of you have driven home from the hospital after your spouse died early and you had to weigh that promise against what you were going through. Some of you have lost a child or hung up the phone to a grown child that told you they hated you, and you had to weigh God's great promise against what you were going through in your life that day. And sometimes you can look at it and say, 
wow, I, I can't believe God is going to work all this for my good. That's incredible. But like 90% of the time, what you're really thinking and feeling is, really? Like, God means all of this for good because is he aware of what I'm going through right now? That tension, that, that like how does God's promise mesh with my life, that's, the, that's what we're going to talk about today, that disappointment, that doubt. And we're going to do that by talking about one of the characters in the Bible, one of our heroes who goes through the exact same thing. Now, before we do that, some of you here today perhaps don't know God's greatest promise, and so I want to tell you what that is, because all of this revolves around the great promises that God makes to us. So let me just outline that first, then we'll get into a man who experienced the same doubt and discouragement that we're talking about. His name was Abram. Uh, The promises that God makes to you start with this. Uh, We are all aware, if we can see the glory of creation, uh, that there is a a God who made all of this, who is worthy of our worship. You have at some point heard children playing in a park and your heart has just leapt and said, oh wow, this place is amazing, or seen a sunset, or seen the beauty of the ocean, or it's something, and your heart has just leapt, and you are left with a choice. I will either worship this God of creation for my whole life, and I will live his ways, or I will suppress this little voice in me that is telling me there is something out there worthy of my worship. And the choice that we make in those moments very often is to suppress that truth, right? To say, no, there's no God in heaven. He's not worthy of my worship. I don't need to live by his ways. We go about our life. We do things our way. And in doing so, we incur the anger and the wrath of God who is worthy of our worship. But he longs to have this worshipful relationship with us. And so the promise he makes is that he has extended a way to each of you to come back to him, to be in relationship with him again. And the way he did that was he sent his son Jesus to live as a man on the earth, to die a perfect death before the Lord, and by doing, to pay for the sins of all who would trust in him. That is a promise he extends to you. You can come back and be in relationship with me again simply by what we call faith, that is trusting in God, believing in that promise that he really does reach his hand out to you and through the death of Jesus offers you a way back. We call that the gospel here. That is the greatest of God's promises. For those of us that trust that, which is many of us here, there are many other promises that come with it. Promise of an eternal hope and future in the resurrection of the dead, which we just celebrated on Friday over uh, the death of one of our brothers. Uh, Promise that his spirit will remain with us through all of life's ups and downs to keep us and get us all the way to the end. Just precious and very great promises that have come through Jesus. But what we're talking about today is the fact that sometimes those promises don't seem to mesh with real life. Sometimes life is just so difficult or so something that you're thinking to yourself, can these promises be real? And that is what our hero in the book of Genesis, Abram, was going through. If you want to, flip to Genesis 15, and while you're flipping there, uh, I'll give you the backstory here. Abram has received a sort of different but very great promise as well. Uh, God has appeared to him uh, when he was getting advanced in years but wasn't quite there yet. Uh, He had no children. He and his wife had no children. uh, And he had no real land to call his own. He lived in a city. And God said, I'm going to give your descendants uh, a great land and make them into a great nation. This seemed very unbelievable, but God believed this promise. And so he left where he was and went to the land God brought him to. And as time went on, uh, things started 
started getting more and more kind of difficult. It seemed like this promise was less and less likely to come true. Uh, years and even a decade went by and he and his wife still didn't have a child. Uh, and so now he's getting to the point where he's been promised many descendants. He's been promised they will have a great land uh, and he's been promised they will become a nation in this land. Uh, but now he and his wife are approaching the years where they couldn't have children anymore, even if they could have had them before. They still don't have a child. The land belongs to somebody else, and it's just looking more and more like this promise isn't going to become true. And so Abram is sensing that same thing that we have all sensed. Are these, are these promises true? Like, this is not starting to look like it's going to go the way that he said. And uh, we see in what happens here a window into how Abram processes those doubts and those disappointments, and also a window into how God handles our doubts and our disappointments. And it is a sweet word. I pray it blesses you great. Let's read Genesis 15. It is, I believe, on page nine of your handout if you don't have a Bible with you. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, the dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. These are the words of the Lord. So there we see then a window into Abram's doubts about these promises and a window into how God handles those promises. 
What I want you to see first is that not only does Abram feel disappointment over these things, and not only does he feel doubt over these promises, but he brings these things right to God as soon as God appears to him. He brings his doubt to the Lord, and the Lord does not find fault in him for doing this. This amazes me every time I see it. I wonder if it amazes you in the same way. Let's look really particularly at it. You can see one of the things Abram says in verses two and three. Now remember the tension is that he's supposed to have a lot of descendants. He doesn't even have one child yet and he's getting to be past the age where it could even be possible. Uh, Abram says to the Lord in verse two, oh Lord my God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you give me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Uh, so what he's saying here is, uh, God, you have given me great riches, but here I am at the end of my life, and they don't mean anything to me because I don't have a son to hand them down to. And so what are you going to do? You're going to double my wealth again so I can just give twice as much to my servant when I die and still have no son to give them to? Uh, what will you give me? God, he just gives this doubt right up to him. Uh, then he says in verse eight, after he's told he will receive the land, he says to him, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess this? So he's got doubts about this as well and he brings those doubts straight to the Lord. He's saying, God, I've got my doubts here about this. Like, I trust you at the end of the day, but I got my doubts here and I'm disappointed with the way that things had gone. I had, maybe it's been 15 years by now. I had thought that by now I would be holding a son or I'd be training a 15-year-old in how to live and there's still no son even though you made this promise. Now, some people have said things like this to God, and we'll get to stories where this happens, where they've said things like this to God, and God comes down very strongly against them when they do this. Uh, but God does not do that to Abram. Um, and the question you gotta ask is why? Why doesn't God fault Abram for bringing these doubts to him? And the reason is in verse six. This is very plainly. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram has a license to express these doubts to God because at the end of the day, he still believes the promises, right? He still has faith. And if you trust God's promises, that's counted to you as righteousness. And now you've got the license to ask questions like these. But the dividing line is, do you trust him? Do you trust his promises? Have you ever wondered why uh, in the Christmas story, um, if you're familiar with some of the, the deeper details in the stories, uh, you might be aware that, that the angel of the Lord appears to a, a man named Zechariah, who's a priest in the temple, and to Mary, and says very amazing things to them. Um, and they both respond with like, what, really? And the angel kind of comes down hard on Zechariah, but is very gentle toward Mary. Everyone wondered why he acts so differently. Uh, you may not be familiar with the stories, and I'll, I'll tell them to you as quickly as I can. Uh, the stories kind of begin when there's a man named Zechariah in the temple. Uh, he and his wife are advanced in years beyond the age of having children, kind of like Abram and Sarah, and they have no children. His wife never, never bore a child. Um, and the angel appears to Zechariah and says, fear not, your wife Elizabeth will conceive, and then you're bear a son. His name is to be John. Uh, and he will do great things. And Zechariah just responds and says, give me a sign or something. How am I gonna know that this is really gonna be as you say? And the angel basically says, 
Okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You're going to be mute until these things happen. You won't be able to say a word. Your tongue will be tied until these things happen. And he rebukes him. And this comes true. His wife conceives. He's unable to speak for, until the baby's born. Baby is born. He writes on a tablet. His name is John. And now everything is fulfilled in the prophecy. And all of a sudden, he can speak again. So that's one side of it. Uh, then, uh, in the middle of this story, while Elizabeth is pregnant with John, uh, the angel appears to Mary as well well and says Mary fear not uh, you are going to have a child who's going to be great his name will be Jesus we'll call him Emmanuel he'll save his people from their sins and she rather similarly says how will this be since I am a virgin right that's not possible so how is this going to come about since I'm a virgin and the angel doesn't come down hard on her. The angel says, uh, he just explains the spirit of the Lord's gonna come upon you, it's gonna work like this. Uh, hey, look at, your, look at your relative Elizabeth. She's pregnant in her old age. Like anything can happen with the Lord. Reassures her and she says, okay, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be as you've said. Why the difference? Like, why, why were the two treated differently? And the answer is here. Evidently, Mary believed the promise, even though it was amazing, and she's got to ask, how is this going to happen? This is, this is crazy. I've never known a man before. How am I going to be pregnant? She still believes the promise, whereas Zechariah does not believe the promise. That is the difference. If you still trust his promises, you can come to him with these doubts and disappointments. And in fact, you should come to him with the doubts and the disappointments. Some of you first need to see that not only are your disappointment and doubts normal, but that if you trust him, the right thing to do is to speak them to him in prayer. That's where you are to take those feelings. Now, if you're still unsure of this, I can show it to you in the Psalms as well. And if you are, perhaps are going through this darkness right now, my advice to you is to spend this very afternoon in these Psalms that we're going to look at praying these things to the Lord to express your doubts to him. Uh, if you have a Bible, flip it to Psalm 44, but keep a paper or something in Genesis 15. We'll go back there. Um, I'm going to read to you just a few verses out of Psalm 44. Uh, the Psalms are littered with faithful saints giving their complaints, their disappointments, and their doubts up to the Lord and just saying them to him. And I'm just going to read them to you. And the question I want you to ask yourself while we're reading these things is, if I said that to God, would I feel bad about it? Would I feel guilty if I said this to the Lord? In Psalm 44, I'll start at verse 15. He's going to first just kind of give the circumstance. Here's what's wrong. Verse 15, he says, All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps nor have our steps departed from your way. So that's the complaint. Now we skip down to 23 and just hear how emotionally he's expressing this to God. He says, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. 
Why do you hide your face and why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? If you were looking, you could have tried to count the exclamation points. He is shouting at God, why have you forgotten us? He's given him all he's got. Let me flip back a few pages to Psalm 13. There's only six verses in Psalm 13. I'll read them all to you. The same thing happens there, more concentrated, more pointed. Again, same question. If you said this to God, would you feel bad? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, God doesn't forget us, and yet this psalmist can say this. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now, remember, same question as before. Why can the psalmist say this? Why does the psalmist have license to give these kind of complaints, to accuse God of forgetting you when you know God hasn't forgotten you? Why can the psalmist do this? It's because of verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. This psalmist still has faith in God's steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So he's saying, I know you are going to save me and I will rejoice in it. And when that day comes, he says in verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He's not saying God's dealing bountifully with me right now. He's saying I will sing to the Lord looking back saying he has dealt bountifully. He knows the good is coming. God will bless him again. If you trust God, you can say things like that. In fact, you should say things like that to him. And some of you should go home this very afternoon, use those two Psalms. I think 42 and 43 make great ones as well. You can just write them in your bulletin if you need to and just use those Psalms to give your complaints, your disappointments, and your doubts to the Lord and watch how he meets you when you do this. The next thing I want you to see is that when we express our disappointments and our doubts to God, He tends to meet us with reassurance. That's the second point we look at today. This is important because when we complain to him, it often feels like he's not listening. And when he gives us reassurance, it often feels like he's giving us about a tenth of the reassurance that we really need. Uh, But we see the pattern, well, if we looked through the Psalms, we would see it there. They tend to have reassurance at the end because God tends to reassure him. But we don't have to look there. We can look at the story today with what God is doing to him. We see how God is responding to Abram. Uh, We can go back to Genesis 15 again, and we'll kind of go back to that story there. Uh, Now, remember the, um, the big picture here. Uh, This is kind of like, uh, these six or eight chapters are like a six to eight episode season of TV that you would watch. Like every episode has its own plot arc, but there's a big plot going on as well. The big plot here is that the promise that God has made Abram is getting more and more out of reach, like I said before, but as it does, God gives him more and more assurance. So first, it's just a word, go to this land, and Abram 
Abram goes. That's all he's got. Go to the land. No promise yet. And then it's, I will give your descendants this land and they'll be a great nation. So now he's got more. Uh, and then as time goes on and he still doesn't have a child, uh, the Lord gives him this beautiful word picture of the dust of the earth. He says, as, as the dust of the earth can be counted, so will your offspring be and they will cover the earth. And so now he's got more than a promise. He's got a mental picture of dust and the earth and he can kind of remember that. Oh, as they have the dust of the earth. That's what my descendants are going to be like. And at the same time, uh, he takes him and walks, the Lord walks Abram around the land and does this real estate ceremony with him and shows him the land so he's seen it. So he's got more assurance as the promise gets more out of reach. Well, now more time has gone by. They still do not have a child and the Lord is upping the ante even more and giving him even more assurance as the thing becomes more out of reach. He does this uh, first by giving him not just the mental picture of dust of the earth, but a visual picture that he can see with his eyes. Before he does that, he just gives him the truth, right? In verse four, he just puts it out there. He says, this man will not be your son, or this man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir, right? That's the, he just says it first. Uh, but then he takes it a step farther. Uh, you can see in verse five, it says, he brought him outside. Now, Lord didn't have to do this. Brings him outside and tells him, look toward heaven. You want reassurance, Abram? Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. There's a pause, I think, in the text there. The quote stops. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So he takes Abram outside. And if you've ever stood under the stars on a clear night before, you know what that feels like. And you're looking up there, and I've tried to count them a few times for fun. You get to about 12 and you lose track, right? You can't do it. Um, and that's part of the fun of it. Um, and, and who knows if maybe, you know, the Lord just tells them, look up, look at the stars. Okay. And you just get filled with awe and wonder, right? And who knows how long he looked. Did he try to count a few times or did he just look and just be amazed? It's like, I can't do this. I can't count the stars. And as, after he's absorbed them and his heart is moved, then he says, your offspring are going to be like those stars in heaven. Now, the dust of the earth picture was cool, but this is more moving, right? Now he is actually seeing the stars in the sky and hearing God say this to him. So he's got more to move his heart, more assurance than he had before. That's one reason I'm saying that as the promise gets more out of reach and it appears less possible, God gives him more assurance. This is because God wants to keep Abram. He's not trying to boot Abram out of the promise. He wants to carry him along and bring him all the way to the end. Uh, that is his character. And his goal is the same for those of you who are Christians as well. If you trust in Jesus Christ, uh, the promise is made that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the finish, right? So God's goal for you, his, all his sovereign working that he does as king over all the universe, it all has the goal of getting you to the finish line with your faith intact. So everything he's doing in your life has the goal of getting you to the finish line with your faith intact. Everything that's happening to your neighbor has the goal of getting you to the finish line with your faith intact. All the ways he interacts with you, if he ever disciplines you, it's to get you to the finish line with your faith intact. That's the goal for you. So he's not looking for you to do something wrong and say something wrong and say, hey, you stepped on the hidden landmine in the field, you're out of the game. No, that's not how he plays this game. He says, my goal is to get you there. And so if you need reassurance, I'm going to give you reassurance. That's the character of our God. And that's what Abram sees here. He's got doubts. He gives them to the Lord, and the Lord says, here, I'll reassure you. 
He doesn't say, who are you to doubt my promises? God, I've given you, I've given you so much and you won't even trust me. No. He says, here, come out, come outside, look up and let your heart be warmed for I will give you assurance. And Christian, he will do the same thing to you. He does this in several ways. He'll do it through good friends. Uh, he speaks his words through his word. Um, we read in Psalm 29 that the voice of the Lord is powerful enough to strip the forest of its leaves and send the deer into an early labor. Uh, and you have access to that voice, many of you holding it in your hands right now. You can open it whenever you want to and read the words of the Lord and hear the voice of the Lord. You can also gather here where we try to make sure the word is read aloud every Sunday. And if twice today you got to hear his words read aloud by a chorus of people. There's nowhere else you get to hear that. You can't buy that on Spotify and listen to it in your earbuds, but you can hear that thunderous sound of God's voice as his word is being read by a multitude. He does these things to assure you. You hear God's word preached here every Sunday. You seek those words. You seek them here in the word on your own and with us as a church together. And the Lord, through these things, speaks reassurance to you. The problem is when we get discouraged, when we become disappointed and doubtful, uh, that tends to be when we're least likely to seek the words that we need, right? It's a, it's a sad irony. Uh, but the very disappointments that we feel tempt us away from the words that would help us cure those disappointments. And so we must turn our eyes right into God's word. Just as the Lord spoke to Abram, he longs to speak to us through these words. And he says, Abram, I give you words for encouragement. And he says to us, church, I give you words for encouragement. Seek the words and find the words. Last thing I want to show you today is that, uh, well, I'll give you one and two again. First, it's normal to have doubt and disappointment in life. Uh, and when you do, bring it to the Lord, right? The second was when you bring it to the Lord, he tends to meet you with reassurance and encouragement. The third and last one we'll talk about today is that one of those assurances is covenant ceremonies. And I know that's a big word that people with too much education like to say, and so I'll break it down for you. Um, a covenant ceremony is just a big old hoopla that's all around the fact that somebody's making a sacred vow in the room. Uh, I know that probably also still sounds very abstract, but the ones you're most familiar with are marriage ceremonies. If you've ever been to a wedding, you were at a covenant ceremony. And there was all kinds of rigmarole and everything that went on, right? Like the, the bride had like 14 bridesmaids and then the groom had to pretend he had 14 friends so that he could have 14 groomsmen. And then you all go out and rent clothes that are too fancy for you to buy and own. And so you're all wearing these riddle clothes and I mean, all the, oh, the flowers everywhere. And sometimes you take the sand and pour the sand thing to all this stuff you're doing, right? None of it would happen except that two people are making a sacred vow together, right? And if the bride or the groom says, vows off, I'm not making a vow, then the whole party falls apart, right? That's because everything that's going on in that whole ceremony is revolving around the sacred vow that's being made. Now, cultures from the beginning of time have done this, 
Ancient cultures had their way of doing covenant ceremonies and kind of their way of like putting your hand over your heart and saying, I solemnly swear that I will do this. And it sounds really strange to us, but you know, it was many thousands of years ago and it was different. So I'll outline for you how they did it and then we'll see God do this very thing. So what they would do many times when they wanted to make like a, a solemn vow together, they would take animals and they would split the animals in half and then line up the halves like that, one side and the other. And then the two parties would walk through the split animals, one on either. So you'd put some here, some here, and they would walk together through the animals, which really makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, the point of it was, uh, if I break this vow that I am making, may I become like these animals that we have walked through? May I be torn in half? if I break this vow that we are making today. And so you wanted to know somebody really meant what they said, be like, all right, let's spend a day on this. Let's cut some animals in half and let's say that we mean this. Let's walk through the animals together. Well, knowing that, let's look at what the Lord does here. Because uh, he takes those, that ceremony and he kind of adapts it and says, here, let me reassure you with this. Uh, starts in verse nine. This is after Abram says, hey, can I get a sign? Like, how do I, how do I know that this is gonna, I'm really gonna possess this land? Verse nine, the Lord says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So he gets the animals. And he brought him all these and he cut them in half and he laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, he drove them away. Okay, so it's set up just like we're talking about. Halves on each side. Let's skip down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, the first readers of Genesis were following the Lord through the desert, right? And they were following him appearing as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they're used to seeing smoke and fire, that's the Lord. Smoke, that's the Lord. Fire, that's the Lord. So when they see that a flaming, uh, smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces, their minds are immediately going to recognize, oh, this is the Lord. This is some appearance of the Lord's presence. The Lord has gone and walked through these pieces. So the Lord himself gets the ceremony together, calls Abram to get all the animals together, and goes through this covenant ceremony as a way of reassuring. Abraham. That's the point. It's a way of reassuring him. And he's saying to Abram, may I be cursed and may I be torn asunder if I break this covenant that I have made with you to give your descendants this land. You don't get more serious than the Lord of heaven saying, may I be ripped in half if I break this thing that I'm making with you. Now that matters. He could carry that with him the rest of his life and know that the Lord had promised him this. That matters for you because if you're a Christian, uh, you have access to two covenant ceremonies that are meant to reassure you as well. One of which you've hopefully already gone through and the other of which you still have access to. And if you have gone through the first one, we'll do it together here even today. Uh, the first one that I mean is the ritual of baptism. This is a covenant ceremony uh, by which we proclaim that Jesus died and rose and this 
person has died and risen with him. And the part of it that I want to proclaim to you today is that that is given to you. And those memories are given to those of you who have been baptized as a way of reassuring you in your doubts. Uh, when you're not sure about what may happen when you must yield up your spirit and your body goes into the grave and you fear these things. Well, you may remember what it felt like the day you were baptized. I don't know, maybe you can remember the temperature of the water the day you were baptized. I was baptized in a spring-fed river in North Carolina. It was freezing. I don't know what it was like when you were baptized. You probably remember it, though. Um, and one of the things I remember, and this comes to my mind every time I baptize somebody, is just how terribly awkward it is, you know. I've done a dozen or more. Uh, this person, it's usually the first time they've ever been baptized, so they don't know what to do. And, I'm, you know, this person is, like, holding you. And, like, is it, do I pull myself out of the water? Is he supposed to pull me? Like, what do I do? And you're put in this weird position where someone takes their arms around you and dunks you in, and your feet are far in front of you. And so if you try to stand yourself up, your feet are just going to slip back and you fall back even more. And you basically have to trust, like, does this pastor know what he's doing? Like, is he going to get me out? Like, you probably remember how awkward that felt. It's awkward every time. You weren't the only one that it was awkward for. Well, the truth is, yeah, you, you trust those hands that threw you down into the water to pull you back out of it. And you can probably remember what it felt like for that person you trusted to pull you back out. You didn't do it yourself. They yanked you out of the water. Uh, that's there to encourage you and reassure you. Uh, as we face one day impending death and we have to yield our spirit just as scary and just as awkward, we're trusting ourselves into the hands of someone who will skillfully pull us back out of that grave. And so we have nothing to be afraid of. We've even got the memories of baptism to hold on to in those moments. And our deepest doubts and our deepest despair in life, we can remember what it felt like for that water to go around us and then for us to be pulled out of it. Remember, no, I am dead to sin. No, the Lord has saved me from sin. I don't have to suffer in this doubt anymore. You've got that and many of you have been through that and have it as a memory. Some of you don't and you need to look forward to it and go through it. The rest of us have it as a memory. The other one is the Lord's Supper, which we'll do in a moment. Uh, if you have been through baptism and you are a Christian, you can do it with us. Uh, and, and by the way, it's so funny that uh, no matter who you are, you have access to one and not the other. Isn't that kind of funny? If you have been baptized, you have access to the table, but I won't let you back in the baptistry again. <laughs> but if you have not been baptized, then you can't come here, but you can go in the baptistry. Really, really funny. No matter who you are, you can take one or the other. That's free. You can just have that. Um, but the point is, uh, if you have been baptized... Um, this table is open to you as a way of God reassuring your soul in the darkest of days. That's why we have it regularly. We do it once a month here now because we need that reassurance. Our souls need it. Uh, let me ask the deacons to come forward as I finish up here. And musicians, you can come forward too. Deacons, when you get up here, just sit on the front row. I've got a few minutes more of things to say. And musicians, you guys know where to go. Uh, there's a funny aspect of this story. You know, I told you earlier that the way that covenant ceremony worked was that both parties would go through the animals together and they would both agree, if I'm the one to break this covenant, may I be torn into like these animals. Um, and you may have already noticed the strange detail about that story, and if not, I'll tell it to you. Uh, Abram does not go through the animals. Uh, only the Lord walks through the animals. And so you just get left with this question, well, why, why did God do it different? Like, why, did, why is God the only one who walked through? Why is he the only one that invoked a curse upon himself and said, may I be torn in two if I break this covenant? 
And the reason is that no matter who breaks the covenant, the one who bears the curse is the Lord himself. Uh, he tells us in ancient history, I am the one who will be torn. I am the one who will give myself to be torn if either of us break this promise. And the truth was, Abram's descendants did break the covenant. They broke it many times in grievous ways over and over again. And the rest of us, I think probably all of us are non-Jews here, so the rest of us were just strangers to the promise. Like we were, we were just rebels not even in on this thing. And the Lord says, I will come to earth and as those animals were torn in two, I will allow my body to be broken for them and I will allow my blood to be shed for them. I will take the curse upon myself. Christian, eat and drink and be assured of God's promises to you. Let's pray.